Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 14th, 2017. This is episode 1984 of the Survival Podcast. Of course, many of you know why I'm saying it that way. The year that the novel was about, we'll actually hear a little bit about that anyway in the history segment today. But it is what? It is Friday! 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 Yep, Monster Show of the Week, Expert Council Q&A. I've got a great lineup of Expert Council members today for you. John Pugliano on whether or not you should use online services like LegalZoom to form LLCs and corporations, etc. Night Vision for murdering uh, feral hogs from Tim Glantz. Erica Strauss on lacto-fermented breakfast salsa. The skinny on induction cookware from Chef Keith Snow. Doc Bones on the removal of sutures without a doctor. Dealing with Lespediza. What the hell's that? You'll find out when Nick Ferguson tells you about it if you don't already know. And taking in some calories while intermittent fasting from Gary Collins. And I have a segment today called Is YouTube Punishing Some Content Producers Like Wrangler Star? Through demonetization. What the hell is that all about? I'll tell you all about it more. And it's not as cut and dry as it might sound on the surface. We'll do all of that today and more. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. Check out safecastle.com today to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory Supporter of the Day is My DIY Solar House. They provide engineering, consulting, and solar installations for homeowners. Go to My DIY Solar House to learn more. Of course, there'll be a link in the show notes today, and you can find them in the directory at tspbiz.com, where you can list your business for as little as $5 per six months, or you can step up and be a bronze-listed member or higher and get show mentions as well, like My DIY Solar House did today. Check it out at tspbiz.com. And remember, if you're going to do business with anybody, check the community first. You'll find it all at the business directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. This is a very active year, and we're now into the time where not only I kind of remember stuff like Everything that's big news from 1984 and forward, I think I'll have some memory of how it affected me or made me think. So it might bring a different perspective to the history segment than I've been able to in the past. We have the McMartin Preschool Hysteria, which I won't read, but it's basically a witch hunt that ruins people's lives for something that never happened. And if you don't know about it, you should read it. Uh, next up, Iraq uses chemical weapons of mass destruction, and we're sure about that because Saddam Hussein says so. You should read that because it's not the one I'm going to read today. And we have the Subway Vigilante Shoots Four Urban Youths. I'm going to read that one because there's a lesson in it for the armed citizen. 
Uh, before we read that, though, let's look at some notable births. Kim Jong-un, born this year, now the head of North Korea. Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder of Facebook and fifth richest person in the world, is born this year, 1984. Prince Harry, younger child of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. In sports, LeBron James is born in music. Agro Levine and Katy Perry in TV. American Fer Ferreira, I don't know who that is, from Ugly Betty. Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. And Megan McCain, co-host of Outnumbered on Fox News. In the movie, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Oscar Wilde, born this year. In film... Uh, this year we have the debut of Beverly Hills Cop, one of my favorite movies of all time. Ghostbusters, one of my favorite movies of all time. They should have never made it two or a three. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, love that. And Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and Amadeus. That's describing my childhood here. Uh, the PG-13 rating comes into use. They say Gremlins and Indiana Jones are too violent. Uh, Alex Strug says, I agree that pulling the heart out of a man's chest and showing it to him before he dies is a little more violent than Goonies, but I think Gremlins is on par. I loved Gremlins. Who else loved Gremlins? Let me know today. This year in TV, V, the sci-fi alien invasion series with the most expensive TV production ever at the time, I loved V. And when they brought the, the, the new version of V back, I, I really hated that they brought it back in like mid-season and they ruined it on purpose. It seemed like because it was a, it's an interesting idea for a sci-fi series. The Wendy's, where's the beef commercials begin? The Apple Macintosh 1984 Super Bowl commercial airs, one of the most successful commercials of all time. In comedy, we had the Cosby Show, Who's the Boss, and Night Court come out this year. And in drama, Murder She Wrote and Highway to Heaven. Um, I'm going to call it there because there's a lot of bullet points for this. Eh, let me read some of the other news ones anyway. Uh, 1984 is the year George L. Orwell's famous novel takes place. 1984 is required we reading. As distasteful as it can be at times, the government, your schools, and the TV news are Orwellian at times. And the TED conference has begun. Did you know that? The whole TED Talk thing? TED Talks, Technology, Entertainment, Design. In six years, it will be an annual event. I think a lot of people just think that's an Internet you know, era thing. Chrysler introduces the first minivans this year, and radio talk show host Alan Berg is shot dead outside his home. The white supremacist group called The Order believes that the American government is controlled by the Jews, and since Berg is Jewish, well, now he's gone. Two men are convicted of violating Berg's civil rights. No one has been convicted of his murder. If you think this kind of nonsense is gone, tune in Monday, and I will, I'm going to share an email exchange with a racist, uh, hateful, delusional Uh, listener who hopefully no longer is a listener because I don't need people like that and you'll hear things like this and worse come from this person and you'll get an insight that every once in a while while well, I'm kind of a dick to people you really will because I deal with people like this all the time like the lunatic that I'm dealing with I'm finally not dealing with anymore because I blocked him uh, but the lunatic who I've been dealing with for several weeks trying to convince me the earth is flat yeah he's serious Not a troll really believes this shit. It's unbelievable to me. Anyway, let's take a look at the subway vigilante shoots four urban youths, contributed by Alex Shrugged. Violent crime in New York has tripled, and the police seem helpless to stop it. Bernie, got, Bernie Getz has been attacked before, and yet the police grabbed the man who had thrown him to the ground. The perpetrator was out on the street before Bernard could finish, finish the paperwork. He applied for a gun permit because he carried expensive equipment and large amounts of cash, but his application was denied for insufficient need. With no other option, he bought a Smith and Wesson while in Florida. Now, while on a subway, Bernie is confronted by four young men no older than 19. They are hiding sharpened screwdrivers because you never know what an arcade game cash box might need, well, repair. 
Things get struck, you know how it is. The urban youth surround him and demand money. They are menacing. At this point, the account gets a little fuzzy, but Bernie is packing and suddenly five shots ring out. Four hit their targets, non-fatal. One man is paralyzed for life. Bernie will go on trial for reckless endangerment of the public and attempted murder. The jury will acquit him of all criminal charges except illegal possession of a firearm. He'll get eight months for that. A later civil trial will find him guilty of paralyzing one man. The judgment of $43 million is purely symbolic. Bernie doesn't have that kind of money, so why not a billion, two billion? Make it three. It makes no difference. The gesture has been made. Bernie makes a gesture back, and everyone goes home. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, this is a little tricky case because of a lot depends on what Bernard was thinking at the time, or rather what the jury thought Bernie was thinking at the time. Bernie testified that he believed they would do him harm. After firing four shots, one man was still uninjured, so Bernie shot him saying, you seem all right, here's another. That seems like a mistake. I will defer to experts, but the perception of civil jury was that the additional shot was uncalled for and betrayed a mindset as something other than self-defense. But he was in the heat of battle. I hate second-guessing. As the years have passed, Bernie believes his actions helped stem the tide of violent crime in New York. Jury instructions were changed to be more favorable to a person defending himself from violent crime. In any case, he still feels fine about it, and that seems reasonable to me. Okay, so I remember this very clearly, and I remember probably about 1985-86, the 2020 piece on it. 2020, the news magazine show with, remember, John Stossel and stuff like that on 2020. And I remember the whole thing very, very well. And I remember the account of the individual that was shot in the back. Now, when he said that, my remembrance of this might be skewed. Maybe he hit the ground, he wasn't hit, because Alex says he was uninjured. Um, What I believe happened was he was hit, but somewhat superficially he was on the ground. And I think the exact quote was, you seem all right. Looks like you could use another one, and bam, shot him. And that's when he hit him in the back, and that's when he paralyzed him. In any event, at this point, the individual was no longer a threat to him. And as an armed citizen, that's something we need to understand. And you can talk all you want about the heat of battle. But there's a point where the, 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 the danger has been diffused, And we have to then at that point, maybe not stand down, but stop our assault, right? Because it's not an assault, it's the defensive assault, right? If somebody's trying to kill me, somebody's trying to hurt me, I'm going to use violence, right? I'm going to use aggression, I'm going to use intimidation, I'm going to use pain, I'm going to assault the shit out of them so they stop assaulting me. But once I've done my job, I am required by law to halt, Now, we also have to think of the context. In this case, what happened was some guys tried to hit him up for money with screwdrivers. They probably would have stabbed the shit out of him if he refused and if he didn't have a gun. Okay, so the use of force there to me is totally cool. But at that point, that's been stopped. I can see why a civil jury found him guilty of causing the damage to the man's spine. Because it was unnecessary. Okay, However... Let's change, let's change the dynamic here. Let's say that Bernard Getz had come home instead of was on a subway, caught some, some, some person in the act of raping his daughter, had shot him, and the guy hit the ground and was crawling toward the door, clearly no longer a threat, and said, you look okay, looks like you could use another one, and popped him in the back. 
Might a jury look at that differently? Because of the context of the situation. Maybe, maybe not. But it would be, I would, if I had to be a lawyer defending one or the other actions, I'd rather def defend the second one rather than the one that actually happened. Because it's easier to make a case to a jury or to a judge that because the situation was where it was, it was so heated up that the person lost control. That a reasonable person in this situation would act the same way. That's always the litmus test for lethal force. Would a reasonable person with the knowledge they had at the time, have behaved the same way. And in this case, a jury was convinced in civil court that a reasonable person would not have shot the guy laying on the ground in the back. And I'm actually surprised that there wasn't some level of criminal conviction. I don't think there should have been, but I'm surprised there wasn't given the climate of New York at the time. Anyway, I will tell you, this did make a difference with muggings and violence in New York City because all of a sudden, even though the armed citizen was illegal... They weren't going to jail for the rest of their life if they shot you when you jacked them up. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. All right, with that, I have our first uh, question of the day. This one's for John Pugliano on using services like LegalZoom to form an LLC or an incorporation or something like that. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. This week, our financial question comes from Nathan, and Nathan is wondering if uh, I would use an online service like Inkfile or LegalZoom to form a business. He mentions that these websites uh, advertise as offering a low-cost alternative to forming an LLC without having to pay the high cost of a, of a lawyer or an attorney, and he wonders if that's a trustworthy method. Well, Nathan, I do think that uh, they're legitimate. I haven't really heard anybody having any problems using those type services. And so if you're just starting up a small business or, uh, you know, really just getting started with uh, some type of uh, an enterprise and it's not overly complicated, yeah, I don't think those are any problem. However, I, I would say this, before I even used a, a company like that, Because things have moved online and have gotten so simple, I would consider bypassing them altogether and just doing a little bit of research on my own and then going directly to my state's website. Uh, the business section of every state has a website where in most cases, as far as the ones I've noticed, you can file your LLC directly online with your state. And, and the important thing to remember is is that that LLC is granted by a particular state. 
It isn't done through the federal government, um, it, and it isn't done through any other type of organization. It's authorized through a state, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the state that you live in or the state where your business is, is primarily going to be operating. It just has to be the state where you actually want the business to be domiciled. So the business is going to be headquartered there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the main place that the business operates. Caveat I want to throw in here. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm not an attorney, but I think the information I'm passing on to you is accurate. I know in my own particular case, I live in the state of Utah. Utah is an extremely business-friendly state. If you want to form an LLC, and I guess I should step back, LLC, for the listeners that don't know, is a limited liability company. It's a legal entity that's been around for, oh, since about the 70s is when it was first created. Started to get popular, though, around the 90s when people realized that it was a, that it was a very effective legal structure to be able to create a separate entity that protected an individual's personal assets from their business operations. So that's why it's a limited liability company. Generally, and this isn't in all cases, but generally, if your business is operating legally and ethically and it's set up properly, should the business get sued or get into some type of a, a legal issue, in many cases that LLC can operate as a firewall where it protects you and your personal assets like your home against a legal judgment if your business would get, would get sued for something. Prior to the popularity of LLCs, people just formed sole proprietorships or doing business as their own name. I think in this day and age, unless you're going to have a more complicated business structure like an S-Corp or C-Corp, then you know in almost every case that I've run across, you should form an LLC. You can do them for property ownership. You can do them for small businesses. You can do them for actually very complicated businesses. Incidentally, if you want to know more about LLCs, for those of you that are MSB members, at the 2016 TSP workshop in the fall, I did do a class on legal structures about LLCs. It was mostly about buying property, but I, I went in and talked about the different types of legal entities that can operate as a business. So if you have access to MSB, you might want to go check out that video. So back to Nathan's question, uh, as I was mentioning, Nathan, you might want to check with your state's business website because here in Utah, it's extremely, extremely simple to form a limited liability company. It costs $70 uh, to do the initial registration. You go directly on the state's website. You go under the part that issues business license. And you literally just click the form and it asks you the questions. You can fill it out by, by doing a little bit of research ahead of time and knowing how an LLC operates, what type of positions are required to be held. The state of Utah actually provides that boilerplate form, and you can very simply go in, enter all that relevant information. As I recall, there's a link on there that forwards you over to the federal government to sign up for your EIN, your employee identification number. What I'm trying to say here is that my experience, with a little bit of work on your part, you could very easily set up an LLC. Everything was there. It only cost $70. And then to register your business each and every year thereafter, it only cost $15. And it's just a matter of you get a postcard in the, in the mail every year. You verify the information. You pay your $15, and you're good for another year. So it's a very, very simple process in some states. Now, Nathan lives in Maine. 
I looked at the Maine State website. You can go on there as an individual and register your own LLC. It does not look as easy as the state of Utah. In fact, I, I Googled Maine to see where they ranked as far as friendliness to small business, and Maine is really at the bottom of the list. It's like, I don't know, number of, you know, 47 or 48 out of 50 states. So unfortunately, it's not a small business friendly state. But all those forms are on the website. It just looks like you have to do each one individually, and it may take a little more homework to know which ones are required and how to put them together. So, Nathan, I would encourage you to go ahead and try and do something like this on your own. Now, having said that, I don't want to disregard the use of professionals. In particular, I'd encourage you to find a really good CPA to help you with your taxes. And then also, if you're going to be bringing in business partners or you're going to be doing some very sophisticated corporate structure or if you're just unsure about how to put together this whole entity, then by all means, go out, find a good attorney, and spend the money because you don't want to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. The money that you pay up front to pay a professional to keep you from making mistakes is well worth it because it'll, it could save you a lot of money from problems in the future. Well, Nathan, thank you for your question. For those of you that want to hear more about my opinions on the stock market of building wealth, please check out the Wealthsteading podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Okay, I'll, I'll add a few things to that. Um, I've set up quite a few different companies over the years, sometimes as an individual, sometimes with partners, almost always an LLC, almost almost always. Uh, we've done an, an, a, a full uh, a C-Corp twice for very specific reasons that I won't get into. Uh, you can do them directly with your state. Uh, there are certain things you're going to need from your state, like a certificate of good standing and things like that, that you you might just have an easier time using a legal Zoom or an ink file or whatever to do. And it, it does kind of make things easier, and it's really up to you. Do you want to do the legwork and save a few hundred bucks, or do you want it just done very, very simply and have it all taken care of and spend a couple hundred bucks? That's that's how you make the decision between using a service and doing it yourself. And how easy does your state make it? Um, the state of Texas makes it pretty easy. It's not as you know cut and dry boilerplate for you on the web on the state website as it is in Utah. Uh, so generally, if I was going to form a, a company in Texas, I would use kind of a rolled rolled out service to do it. Okay. Now there's two different parts of this. One is forming the company. And when we form the company, specifically, I'm going to stick to an LLC because that's what was asked about. We don't have shares in an LLC. Uh, a a C-Corp has shares, uh, so there's a certain number of shares, and then each person that's an owner owns a certain number of shares. A, a LLC works purely on what's called percent of ownership. Now, if you're setting up an LLC so you can do business as an LLC, and there's going to be one person in that LLC, and that's you, Uh, other than specific legal framework questions for the operations of your business, you don't really need a lawyer. Uh, when you're structuring some things tax-wise, you might want to consult a CPA and tax attorney both, or you do what I do and you get find a CPA that is an attorney. That, that's that. My CPA is an attorney, and that's the best of both worlds because he understands both sides of things. Um, and and so for consulting on things like that. But it has nothing to do with really the formation of the company other than is an LLC right for you. And in, in most instances it is. The one thing to be aware with with an LLC is the LLC never pays taxes. The owners of the LLC pays taxes. And it can force you to take distributions to meet your tax obligations. That's one real important thing to learn uh, before you decide an LLC is what you want to do. All right. 
But here's the other side. When you have, a, let's say you're forming a partnership with three partners, and you're going to have what's called an operating agreement that goes along with your LLC, most of the services like e-file and legal zoom will send you a boilerplate operating agreement boom and unless you execute it all it's there for is if the state ever questions your legitimacy here's our operating agreement all right um but in general an operating agreement needs to be executed by all of the members of the llc it will state things like well if you die what happens to your shares in the company who's the manager of the company who can spend the company's money How much money can you spend of the company's money as an owner or a partial owner without consulting other members of the corporation or a manager? Right? So a lot of times you say something like, well, you know, you can spend up to $500 a month on, you know, whatever you need and file an expense report back to whoever's doing the accounting. And that's cool. But if you have to spend more than that, then you need approval of a manager or a majority of partners or something. Like all of those things are where lawyers really are valuable. So you can still do your own formation and, and, and maybe have a lawyer draft an operating agreement. The more people involved, the more complex, and the more money involved, the more important that is. Because there's a lot of, well, you said, well, no, that's not what I said. Well, you said this. Well, that's not what I meant. But what you So that's where I think the lawyer kind of is, is a really good idea in the formation of these companies. Not so much for the format. It's a form, forming companies easy. Okay. But here's another thing to be aware of. You form a company in your state. It has legal ramifications in your state like taxes, sales tax collection and stuff like that. Make sure you understand what you're doing before you do it. All right. That's, that's the, my little addition there. Um, LLCs are great. For an individual that wants the protection of a company and to be able to operate as a company and, and what have you. Because if you're a single person in an LLC, the income passes straight through to you. You pay taxes on it on your personal tax rate. There's nothing complicated about it for a single person. The more partners we add, the more complex the whole situation becomes. All right, let's take another one. This one is for Tim Glantz. I'm using night vision. To shoot feral hogs. Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for Sean in Oklahoma asking about night vision. And uh, Sean sent a, a really nice uh, uh, question in that was just the right length. He gave all the pertinent information without being super long, and I thank you for that, Sean. Uh, but he's uh, looking at buying his first night vision. He's said feral hogs are beginning to become an issue on his property. He wants to be proactive. So he wants something that can be used not only for uh, hunting them at night, but also for uh, general security on his property and other uses. And he shopped around, looked at YouTube videos and everything on the net, and he's, he mentions that it's a very confusing issue because there's a lot of opinions and a lot of people doing uh, everything on them. And he's kind of ch price-checked everything from the $500 Bushnells to the you know $15,000 ones that are the latest and greatest that you know most people in the U.S. military don't even have access to. Uh, Only two things he's uh, kind of decided on is he said he doesn't want to spend too little money and be disappointed. And uh, he thinks that dual tube uh, is a must for wider field of vision. Uh, a few things on there. First thing, Sean, it looks like from everything you mentioned, you're focusing on head-mounted units and not weapon-mounted units or rifle-mounted units. And you are uh, doing the right thing there. 
because uh, if you only have one night vision piece, you want it to be head-mounted and not rifle-mounted because when it's rifle-mounted, you can't look at anything without aiming your rifle at it. And that's obviously an unsafe situation. You also can't walk around easily with it at night. You can't drive your ATV or UTV at night or anything else. And it's much more limiting and a much more specific piece. And the way I like to go is instead of a rifle-mounted unit is a head-mounted unit with a good infrared laser. With that, you're good out to uh, two to 300 uh, meters if you zero that laser properly uh, with ease. I've shot that far with them. Um, you are right that uh, night vision is one of those places where if you don't spend enough, you will be disappointed. And the $500 and even $1,000 units will disappoint. When you jump into the 1800 to $2,500 range, you have a huge jump in capability, lifespan, and uh, durability. And the uh, Now, where I will say you might want to rethink it is you're thinking about dual tube being a must. And uh, there are two reasons for that. I've got a lot of time using single tube. Uh, 99% of the U.S. military, you know, that's going to be out doing ground combat is going to have single tube. You have to get into the spec up guys for or your aviation guys to really see many dual tubes out there. Uh, and dual tube really, uh, it doubles the price, literally, because you're literally buying two night vision units put together into one. All the expensive pieces in there, you're doubling. The only things that you're not doubling are the head mount and everything else that are, that are not the expensive part. So you're getting into a lot more money. And typically, it's even more than doubled. Where I would suggest looking for you, uh, the two options I generally suggest for people starting out are either a mil-spec PVS-7. PVS-7 is the monotube that has two eyepieces where you've got your series of mirrors that take both eyes into the same tube. Or your PVS-14, which is a single-tube head-mounted unit where it just comes down and covers one eye. And then also you can weapon-mount uh, that 14 if you want behind a night vision-compatible uh, optic. Although uh, most people don't do that for the most part, especially in your situation. Uh, the PBS-14 is a little cheaper. Uh, the PBS, I mean, I'm sorry, the PBS-7 is a little cheaper, not the 14. Uh, the 14 is newer, it's going to be lighter, and it's going to be more versatile. And I'm going to suggest the 14 for you for one of the reasons of versatility is that it is possible to have dual-mounted 14s to give you that dual tube if you want to. So the avenue I'm going to suggest you try if you really think that dual tube is the way you want to go is to buy a single PBS-14, try it, use it with the head mount uh, in, in a, the single tube configuration, and then if you decide that you really want to try the dual tube, you can buy the mount that will go on the rest of your mounts that will hold two of them, and you can buy a second PBS-14 to mount on there. Uh, just make sure you get uh, similar tube specs on the second PVS-14, so buy it from the same vendor so you're not uh, unbalanced between the two eyes. And the reason I would suggest going that route if you're really set on the dual tube is it, it gives you options. Number one, they're both totally independent units so that if the power supply goes bad on one side, you've still got the other side you can use in a monotube. You can also take them apart and have two people with a single tube uh, head-mounted one, monocular style, and it gives you all those options, whereas if you bought a purpose-done, uh, only usable as a dual-tube setup, like one of the ANVIS units uh, that aviation guys use, you can't split it up for two 
two users, and if one if your power supply goes bad, both tubes are down. So uh, that's the way I would suggest doing it. And uh, if I was if I was sitting there down with you, I would say buy yourself a good PBS 14, just a single one. Get the mounts and everything. Run it as a monocular, and then if you really uh, think you need that dual tube configuration, uh, invest in the second PVS14 and the dual mount to hold them both. But as I said, I think you will get that single one, and I think you'll be very pleased with how it works and realize that the expense it's going to take to to get that uh, dual tube configuration uh, is really probably pushing the point of diminishing returns for you. Hope that helps, and I hope that uh, gets you a little. Uh, insight into getting started but definitely uh go up there and spend a more than the bushnells get into the two thousand twenty five hundred dollar range uh a little more if you can uh swing it on the pvs 14 up to about three and you'll get a really nice one you'll be happy with um especially since you know you you, you are a ranch and you can uh do that as a business expense that helps with it and run that one in a monocular style before you invest in uh twice as much money to uh, dual tube it and if you do decide to to try the dual, make sure you buy a second set of head mounts to use it as a monocular too, so you can have the idea uh, or have the option of either running both for one person or splitting them up so two people have night vision. Uh, once again, if it was me, you know, I'm probably not going to be out doing that kind of stuff alone, and I would rather have two people with monoculars than one person with a dual tube uh, for a variety of reasons. But if you do it that way, it gives you the option to run it both ways. Hope that helps, and uh, as always, if you got any follow-up questions or anything, don't, don't hesitate to contact me. Uh, you can get me uh, my email address off the store's uh, website at oldgrouch.com. Everybody out there, we've been running some great sales, so uh, be sure to check our Facebook page. It's facebook.com uh, forward slash great surplus deals. Uh, every time we announce something, it comes out on there. And uh, be sure to check it out because we've been running some stuff out at some really killer prices here lately. I've made some good buys and been passing some stuff on to folks. Thanks a lot for the show, Jack, and thanks for the great question, Sean, and hope everybody has a great day. Okay, everything Tim tells you about night vision is not only accurate, it's more accurate than I can tell you because he knows a hell of a lot more than I do about it. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit different of an approach here. If, if you want night vision and killing pigs is a way to justify the purchase, then great. If you want dead pigs, we have other options that cost less. If we actually have a pig problem on our property, probably the best thing we can do is build a pig trap and trap the pigs, walk out in the morning with a cup of coffee, and shoot them in the freaking head. I mean, that, if, if, we want, if we want dead pigs, if that's, the, if that's the goal, rather than, you know, hunting in, with night vision, and, and all we need is to reduce the population and put some pork in the larder, then that's the answer. And we can make that as simple as because pigs don't climb real good. Okay, so we can build basically a feeder, like a plain old deer feeder, and put basically a corral around it with, with cattle panels staked into the ground so they can't get underneath it. And all we need is an actuated gate, and we can take a cheap, I mean, you don't need a good one, I'm talking like a $30, $40 game camera, and stick it out there and figure out what time of night most pigs are around that feeder at the same time, and it might take a while before they start showing up. And once we know we have a big, big saunter of pigs coming in at, let's say, 2.30 a.m., we just set that freaking gate to go at 2.35 a.m. And again, we walk out with our cup of coffee. We have our 
you know, are done, and we take a sip of coffee, dead pig, dead pig, dead pig, dead pig, dead pig, pull out the, the, the ropes, hang, start hanging and, and, and skinning and, and cutting up pigs. All right? That's one way we can handle that. The other way, if we actually want to hunt and we don't want to pay for night vision, I learned this on my last hog hunting trip, and this is like a pay-to-hunt operation where they set things up. You can get basically like a bright LED light that runs on 12 volt, and like green is probably the best color. Red works pretty well too, but green is probably the best color. It's 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 less uh, you know less upsetting to the pigs. And you have your blind and you have your feeder. And if you're going to hunt pigs at night, hunt them with a feeder. There, there's nothing wrong with it. It's completely legal, and it's one of the best ways to do it. We set up a feeder to throw feed. We set up a light that's about 15 to 20 feet in front of our blind, and that light is pointing toward the feeder. And we run it from a 12-volt battery in our, our uh, blind. And if we're really smart... We're going to put that thing on a timer with a little solar panel to drop some charge into it, and we're going to have that light come on and shut off each night. Let it, say, run from dark till you know till a couple hours before morning, and let the feeder go off after night, and the pigs will come in. They'll get completely desensitized to that light, and they'll sit out there. And because the light's out in front of you, a scoped rifle... If you put that feeder about 50 yards uh, from your, your stand, wherever you're sitting in your stand, and that light's about 20 feet in front of you, when you put a scoped rifle on that area, you can see everything in it lit up. It looks like night vision if it's a green light. So we can do all that for a few hundred dollars. That's the feeder. That's a battery. That's a little charge controller. That's a little you know, 40-watt uh, solar panel. Uh, some corn to go in there. Uh, we can do all that cheap. So we can take either one of those approaches if it's just about killing pigs. But night vision's fun. I'll tell you what's even more fun. The guy at the place we hunted on, he had thermal vision. And that was like looking at a cartoon. You could see everything completely crystal clear. And uh, that was awesome. But that was also like a $6,000 scope on the rifle, the really good one. Um, but that was, that was uber cool. So we have to decide, do we really want night vision or do we just want dead pigs? Because we can make dead pigs for a hell of a lot less money, even if they're being highly nocturnal and hard to get to during the daytime. And the trap will be the most reliable method you can use. It will absolutely be the most. Most of the hunting operations that, that you know have people come pay to hunt wild pigs and stuff like that, they're fenced. And they might be a couple hundred to a couple thousand acres or more. But the way they get their pigs, they don't have enough breeding pigs on those for people to come in there every week all year long and shoot pigs. They have people that are out in the river bottoms and stuff like that in the wild, trapping hogs that are released onto the property. If it works there, it'll definitely work in an area where they're already a nuisance, they're conditioned, and you condition them to a place where they can get food every night. And like I said, you can drink your coffee while you shoot your pigs. Set the, set the trap Friday night so you got all day Saturday to process. A lot easier, a lot less money. Let's take another one. Hello, TSP. This is Erica Strauss, author of The Hands-On Home, calling in to answer Matt's question this week about the best ferment for breakfast. Matt emailed in and said, I have chickens and eat an egg scramble every morning rather religiously with vegetables and meat, either bacon or sausage. Historically, I would put a dollop of salsa on top of my eggs. 
I've started fermenting now and have two sauerkraut batches under my belt. I'm fermenting in a 10 liter crock and now I'm using the kraut as a bed onto which I pile my eggs from my cast iron skillet. Matt is talking about cast iron, sauerkraut, and eggs from chickens. It's like all my favorite things. All right. He says, I have a real itch to ferment a badass salsa. And I'm going to start with the salsa on your site. Thanks, Matt. Any thoughts around your fermented salsa and or another ferment that would be perfect for breakfast would be greatly appreciated. And Matt also says, do you see any issue with scaling up your salsa recipe? Maybe not to 10 liters, but by two or three times. Well, Matt, I am also a salsa on eggs person, so I am thrilled to speak to this question. You are doing, um, you know, everything I do. You got your cast iron, you got your eggs, you got your fermented foods. I'm not sure I can really improve on your formula, but I will try to maybe add a little nuance to help you out. In terms of the fermented pico de gallo recipe on my site, you know, I think it's a great starting place. I like the recipe. Obviously, I wouldn't have shared it if I didn't think it was great. Um, and I have eaten that particular recipe countless times on eggs myself. So I would love it if you tried it and let me know what you thought. But it is not my absolute favorite breakfast salsa. I have another recipe also on my website for a fermented tomatillo salsa. It's a salsa verde, a green salsa, and it is amazing with eggs. If you like a tomatillo salsa, I think you're going to love it. I really recommend this recipe. It's got tomatillos, which are so easy to grow, uh, onions. It's got a couple of different types of peppers, lime juice, cilantro, garlic, basically everything you would want in a really great tomatillo salsa. And then it's got that zippy, tangy quality from the lacto-fermentation with just a little bit of heat from the peppers. And of course, because this is a lacto-fermentation salsa, if you want more heat, you can just add more peppers and that's totally fine or spicier peppers also totally fine. Since this uh, lacto-fermented tomatillo salsa recipe is online available for free, you know, to read, to print out, I'm not going to read it here on air. I will send a direct link to Jack and he can put it in the show notes. And, um, and if that, if you guys can't get to that, just go to nwedible.com, type in tomatillo salsa and the recipe I'm talking about will pop right up. So some other excellent fermented options for breakfast that I, I will mention include fermented peppers, either whole or sliced, like fermented jalapeno peppers can really spice up a scramble. Um, I like fermented hot sauces. Fermented onion relish can be great with eggs. Um, also, there's a thing called curtido, which is kind of like a Latin American pickled cabbage condiment. It's kind of like El Salvadorian sauerkraut. It's got carrots and onions, um, herbs, cabbage, of course. It's a little bit tangy. Um, it's really actually quite great on something like a breakfast taco or a breakfast burrito. And then if you're into ketchup on your eggs, I'm not really my thing. I like to keep my ketchup for French fries. But if you like ketchup on your eggs or on your hash browns, you can do a lacto-fermented version of ketchup. So you have a lot of options when it comes to lacto-fermented condiments for breakfast. For now, let's just get back to salsa because I think I speak for everyone when I say that salsa and eggs do go together like peanut butter and jelly. 
Now, Matt, you asked if you could scale up the recipe for lacto-fermented salsa on my blog. And the answer is, yeah, kind of, but not really. The reason is um, because of some reader feedback, that particular recipe is lowish in salt by the standards of a typical lacto-ferment. And so it relies on a combination of both salt and active culture way for a kick-started, fast, safe lacto-fermentation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But because it's a little bit of a lower salt ferment, it does tend to make this ferment um, that won't last quite as long compared to a higher salt ferment. And that's perfectly okay for a small quantity of salsa that one could reasonably expect to get through in a couple of months, you know, and store in the fridge. But it can get a bit problematic if you, say, quadruple the recipe and you want to store the salsa at, you know, root cellar or higher room temperature. So instead of just multiplying ingredients, what I would like to do is just take a minute and teach you and, you know, the rest of the fam here in TSP land how to make any quantity of lacto-fermented salsa, lacto-fermented condiment, and do it without really having to follow a recipe so that you don't have to be, you know, kind of a slave to someone else's concept of what your salsa should taste like. Um, the first thing to know is that all lacto-fermented vegetables fall into one of two categories, brine-added or self brining. A brine added ferment is like the classic sort of cucumber dill pickle. You have a vegetable, either whole vegetable or in pretty big chunks. And separately, you have a brine of water, salt, and you know, whatever spices you want to add. And you put your whole or your chunky vegetable in a jar or a crock and you pour the separate salty brine over the vegetable and that's it. The amount of salt in the brine is what you're relying on to do the fermentation to sort of um, create the safety zone that allows those salt tolerant lactic acid bacteria to go to work. And the amount of salt in the brine will vary based on the vegetable and how hot your climate is and how long you intend to do the ferment. But typically most vegetables fermented in an added brine scenario do best when the brine itself is between about 3% to 5% salt. In some cases, even up to 10% salt can be acceptable, but modern fermentation, 3 to 5% is pretty typical. Now, ferments like salsa and sauerkraut are different. They are not submerged in a pre-mixed wet brine. Instead, what they do is they rely on the moisture in the vegetables that you're fermenting themselves to create that brine when mixed with salt. So there's really no added water. You might have some flavorings like lime juice or lemon juice, but there's no separate mixed brine. Instead, the salt that you add draws the moisture from the cells of the shredded or the chopped vegetables that you're fermenting, and this is what creates the liquid that ferments the condiment. I call these types of ferments self-brining, and ferments prepared this way without additional water, without a separate brine, with the brine purely made from the juices and the liquids from the vegetables and the added salt. These should typically be mixed to about 2% salt. 
Now, the reason why a higher salt level is generally not appropriate for self-brine ferments is that there's no dilution to account for. So, for example, if you imagine a cucumber, what is that, like 95% water, 98% water? You take this 98% water vegetable you put it in a brine that you've made. And because of osmosis, what happens is that the salt in the brine draws water from the cucumber and this dilutes the brine salinity. And eventually the salt level between the brine and this very moisture laden vegetable, the cucumber, diffuses and the cucumber and the water and everything sort of reaches equilibrium. But because there's so much moisture in the cucumber, the brine itself is actually less salty at equilibrium than it was when you mixed it. So how much less salty is it? You know, if you mixed your brine at 4% salinity after you pour it over your cucumbers and let it sit, is it at 1.8% salinity? Is it at 3.4% salinity? Well, you know, you don't know. Who knows? You're not going to send your pickles to a lab to figure this out. So with brine added fermentation, we just do our best. And um, because of this, the brine we pour on the vegetables that we're fermenting in a brine added situation has to start out a little saltier just to compensate for the wateriness of the thing that we're fermenting. Now with self-brining ferments, we're really not worried about dilution you know, your salsa is not going to dilute itself when you add salt to it. If you measure in enough salt by weight to bring a certain amount of salsa up to a 2% salinity, the moisture that is drawn out from the tomatoes and the onions by that salt, it doesn't dilute a brine, it creates it. So it doesn't matter if the juicy tomatoes before salting become slightly less juicy tomatoes in salty tomato juice after salting, because osmosis will eventually ensure that everything stabilizes at the same 2% salinity we mix to. And in this way, self-brining ferments like sauerkraut and salsa are actually easier to be quite precise with, and so they're the easiest to get right in any quantity, time and time again. There's just one trick. If you want to be able to make ferments in any quantity consistently, you have to weigh your ferment and you have to do a tiny, tiny bit of math. Here's the basic equation you need to remember. A thousand grams of prepared vegetable that you're going to ferment times 0.02 equals 20 grams. Thousand grams times 0.02 equals 20 grams. And what this says is that for every thousand grams or one kilogram of prepared vegetable that you're going to turn into your lacto-fermented condiment, salsa, sauerkraut, whatever, it's going to take 20 grams of salt to bring the total salinity to 0.02 or 2%, which is a really good target for most self-brining ferments. And the great thing about this method is it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, table salt or ultra fine sea salt or very fluffy kosher salt or some fancy giant rock pink salt from the south of Spain or Hawaii. The formula does not care. Volumetrically, all these salts are going to measure very differently. But on the scale, 
20 grams is 20 grams. So if you weigh your ferment and you weigh your salt, no matter what kind of salt you're using, no matter what kind of vegetable combination you're fermenting, you need 20 grams of salt to bring a thousand grams of vegetables to 2% salinity, which is just about right to ensure a healthy lacto fermentation environment. And that's it. Now, if you happen to be in a very hot place where ferments are extra prone to mold or very difficult, or, you know, if in the summer your ferments go too fast and develop off flavors, well, that's fine. What that tells you is now you can increase the salt by 10%, even 20% over baseline to prevent other bacteria and molds from outcompeting your lactic acid bacteria. So with our basic formula, it's very easy to modify. Instead of 20 grams of salt per kilogram, maybe you use 22. And so you've got a reliable, consistent, repeatable formula, which makes it very easy to figure out the right amount of salt precisely to add for your particular home and climate, your season, your taste preference, all that stuff. This is much more precise than, you know, following an online recipe that says use four Roma tomatoes and one onion and a tablespoon of salt. And now I realize that my online recipes say stuff like use four Roma tomatoes and one onion and one tablespoon of salt. And, you know, what I want to tell you guys is that very often recipes are written as if they're some sort of absolute when really they are at best a compromise between the recipe author needing to convey how to cook something in 200 words for very practical reasons and that same recipe author knowing that if she had 200,000 words, she could teach the reader how to not need recipes in the first place for this type of thing. So when it comes to fermenting salsa, don't take my recipe and quadruple it. I mean, I'm flattered you're starting with my recipe. Don't get me wrong. And, and it's a great recipe. But the better thing is what you do is you go and you make yourself a pico de gallo or you make yourself a tomatillo salsa and you make it the way you love it. You start with my recipe maybe as a guideline. That's fine, right? But you taste and you adjust and you add more onion or you make it more spicy or uh, maybe you add a little more cumin, but you make it so that it's, it's what you're happy with and then you weigh it and you do the math and for every thousand grams of prepared salsa, you add those 20 grams of salt. And that's how you reliably make any quantity salsa you want to your taste without being bound to a recipe, e even my recipe. And that said, I, I do think you should try the tomatillo salsa recipe because it's really good. Thank you so much to Matt for the awesome question. I could talk about fermented salsa and eggs and cast iron skillets all day long. Uh, thank you to Jack, as always, for the incredible show. What an amazing resource. Guys, please do keep your questions coming. Um, have a really wonderful weekend. Keep your ear to the ground. Things are weird out there, huh? And um, I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Erica just does an awesome job for us. I'm so grateful to have her on our expert council. And guys, keep sending in the questions for Erica and the rest of the council members, definitely. little note here I forgot during the intro segment. Uh, Michael and Sue LaPreeze have stated that uh, they'd love to have you guys not just limit your calls or your questions to them for homeschooling, but, you know, parenting in general, dealing with issues with kids, things like that. Uh, they have quite a bit of experience with that, you know, having raised some really great young people into some great 
young adults and doing the, you know, adopting kids and fostering. I mean, it's just amazing uh, how, how many wonderful young people these folks have turned out. So uh, your questions on parenting in general can come to the LaBreeze uh, couple as well. Next question I have is now for Chef Keith Snow on induction cookware. Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. I want to respond to Claude from Finland. And uh, Claude is uh, asking a good question here. And, and this uh, gets right to the heart of some uh, classical Italian cooking techniques and also uh, what, what pans are going to be the best for this. Um, so we'll talk about that now. Now, Claude, um, you are correct in that traditional Italian pasta, what, what's done is the pasta is cooked al dente. And for those that don't know, al dente just means to the tooth or toothiness. So some chew left in the pasta. Now, if you're going to make pasta in the way I'm about to describe, if you overcook the pasta, in other words, if it comes out of the water being um, fully cooked and then you have to put it into the pan to finish it, you're going to have um, crap, basically. You're going to have pasta that's overcooked, falling apart. So get used to tasting um, a little bit of chew in your pasta because that is a lot more um, classical than overcooked pasta with a condiment or a sauce lathered on top. And that's what you get in most restaurants. You'll get, you know, pasta on the plate and then they'll take a big ladle full of red sauce or something like that and they'll spoon it on top. And, you know, that's great. I love that myself. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to get into something a little more traditional, um, just listen to how I'm going to describe things. Now, in Italy, uh, like I said, they cook the pasta al dente, and then it's taken from the hot water, and it's usually added into a skillet or a pot, something um, that has the condiment in it. And the condiment is just that. It's a condiment. In other words, you know, when you have a, a hamburger, you put a little condiments on there, but those are just little additives. You know, they're little flavorings. They're not, um, that's not the dish. In America, we tend to have the pasta there, and then the sauce is a dish where we'll ladle on eight ounces of, you know, cream sauce or red sauce, and it's basically sauce with some pasta. In Italy, it's completely opposite. So properly cooked pasta is the if that's the dish, and then it's got a condiment. And that could be anything from sautéed vegetables, it, you know, maybe deglaze a little wine and a touch of cream, or it could be um, tomatoes and basil. It, it could be a number of things. Um, but the way you do it is important, and definitely the pan that you do it in is important. So Claude was uh, in Italy, and he checked out how they how they did it there. So here's a great example. Let's just say you wanted to do... Um, I'm thinking of a shape here. I don't know, tagliatelle with um, some wild mushrooms and maybe a touch of cream. So in your pan over a medium-high heat, you'd have uh, some good extra virgin olive oil, maybe half of a minced shallot, two garlic cloves. You'd start those going, put in a little bit of fresh thyme and some freshly chopped mushrooms, and you'd crank the heat and start sauteing these up a bit. Maybe you deglaze, excuse me, in a few minutes with some marsala wine or or something like that, and then add um, maybe a little bit of stock and a touch of cream and a couple pats of butter, some Parmesan cheese. Now you've got this lovely condiment in there. Your pasta comes out of the water al dente, so it's not fully cooked. It can't be fully cooked. And then you add it to the pan, and you take your tongs, 
and you start to move it around and toss all that goodness that's in the pan in the pasta. And what happens is the liquid that's in there will get absorbed in the pasta. The heat from the pan will cook the pasta um, fully. And then you just toss everything out and it's kind of already mixed and there's no um, pasta at the bottom of the bowl with a lump of stuff on top. That's how they do it in Italy. Now, moving to the pan, um, this is an interesting kind of uh, evolution for me with pans. Now, obviously, coming from the restaurant business, I love nonstick pans, but the technology that I've always seen has been they work great in the beginning, then they start to get scary scratches on them and chips and all that, and then you start thinking, man, am I ingesting that stuff? Um, when you crank those things over high heat, those chemicals – that are in there, definitely off gas into your house. It's just not something that is uh, fun to think about. And then there's other types of pans, stainless steel, cast iron. They all come with a host of challenges. Now, I've tried every type of um, nonstick pan that there is. And up until recently, I was using some um, Italian stoneware pans. And those were pretty nonstick. The problem I was finding with two or three brands that I use is they're taking a good coating and putting it on a crappy pan. You can't have flimsy pans that are thin because that has hot spots. And also when you're bonding something to a pan, you want the underlying pan to be very solid. It's kind of like, you know, let's say you're painting a house. It rained. Well, it's, it's kind of dry. We'll just put the paint over it. You know, you want dry wood, the right day, it's got to be, it can't be too cold, can't be too moist, because you want that paint to adhere to the surface. It's not much different in making these pans. If you take something that might be a good surface and you made it to a flimsy aluminum pan, that coating is not going to last very long, because when you put metal over heat, it expands, it moves, it definitely changes its shape. There's no question about it. It's just simple physics. So, Trying those stoneware pans, they seem to be pretty non-stick, but they don't cook very well. And I'm saying they don't have even cooking. You get hot spots. You know, you can put it right on the center of a gas burner and heat it up fully, put a pancake in there, and one side of the pancake is completely white. The other side is cooked properly or parts of it are cooked properly. And as somebody that spends an awful lot of time in front of a stove, that is highly irritating to me. And it was the same thing with ceramic, very non-stick, but mated to crappy pans, expensive. And then, alas, recently, over Christmas, I was in Colorado. I happened on a uh, cool store called Jack's, J-A-X is the name of the place. And it has everything from soup to nuts, camping gear, clothing, um, cookware, lots of cookware. I mean, they had, I was in there thinking, whoa, this is awesome. They had every um, nice bit of cookware and gadgets and just a lot of great stuff. And I saw this um, display for a brand called Swiss Diamond. And I'm skeptical of cookware just by nature because so much of it is just marketing. And I picked up a piece of this stuff and immediately I was thinking, wow, I picked up like a, I don't know, eight or 10 inch skillet and this thing was heavy. I thought, hmm, I don't know, at least they're they're putting this coating, whatever it is, on a good pan. And uh, it turns out that these pans, these Swiss diamond pans, 
After using one, I contacted the company and I formed a relationship with them, and that's pretty much all I'm cooking with these days. And having a few months under my belt using the pans, I'm very impressed, and I'll say that. And their their coating is a um, it's the non toxic coating, so it doesn't have the I think they're called PFOAs. It does not contain those. Um, so it's a safe coating, and it also, they call it Swiss Diamond. What they do is they take literally diamonds. They're crushed up into a powder, and who knew, but diamonds are very nonstick by nature, and they're also some of the hardest substances you know, on earth. So they take the diamond powder, and it's mixed into their their system, so to speak, and baked into these pans somehow, making them very, very nonstick. But what I also love is that they're made into a solid pan. And that is going to help protect this coating. Um, so these things cook really well. They cook very evenly. And once they're to temperature, and because there's a lot of mass to these pots, once they get to temperature, then they um, take a long time to cool down. But they cook evenly. And, Claude, there's definitely uh, an, an induction line. And that's what I have. I think only one of the pieces that I have is not induction friendly. So they make regular ones, and then you can't really tell the difference except the bottom is a little different. But they are induction friendly. And uh, I gave Jack a link uh, for you, and it's going to take you to a pan in their induction line. It's called Edge Stir Fry. And it's basically a saute pan with sloped um, edges, but they're they're quite tall. And this is going to be good. And this is the one thing that's annoying. When I do cook pasta using the methods that you're interested in, um, it's difficult to do it in a regular skillet or, you know, quote unquote, fry pan because the edges are so low that, I mean, you make a mess. It's all over your stove. But this edge pan is great because it does have these high edges. So you're able to make your condiment, then take your pasta, put it in there, toss it around, and get very good results. And it is definitely induction-friendly, but it works perfectly on gas. Um, I even, when I make videos for my courses, I'm even using sometimes a butane burner, and putting the induction over that works perfectly. Now, uh, the one thing you want to do is not, you know, these things are very tough. They're much, much more durable than any other cookware in my research. Now, you still don't want to be taking metal, um, you know, you can use wooden spoons, uh, silicone, all that, but you don't want to be digging metal in there. So get yourself a pair of tongs that have a silicone um, tip to them. I saw a set of these for 7 or $8 somewhere. I don't know um, how great they are, but the point is the uh, tips of them were, you know, had nice, soft, high-temperature silicone, so you can... Um, Use these tongs in this Swiss diamond pan without the fear of damaging it. The other thing I love about these pans is they're all uh, oven safe, the handle. So last night I had some guests over. I made a uh, tortilla, which is a, um, a Spanish dish of eggs and potatoes. I put a little smoked paprika in it. It was unbelievable. It starts out on the stove and then it's finished in the oven. I had it in a 375 degree convection oven and the handles are rock solid. So, um, I definitely like this cookware, Claude, and what I like the most about it is it's not made in China. This is made in Switzerland and uh, in the German-speaking section of Switzerland where they tend to manufacture some pretty um, high-tech products. So take a look at them. There's links uh, in the show notes um, that I'm going to give to Jack, and one of them is there is a link to their induction line that shows you everything that's induction. So that's it. I hope this helps. Um, 
give you an idea of pan and and also you know a tap on the back for learning that proper method of of cooking pasta with the condiment. So um, that's uh, that's it, Claude. And I wanted to uh, remind everybody to check out my uh, new website, tastyeducation.com. This is where my um, video courses are, are living. The food storage feast course is there right now. Um, the paleo beef course is um, almost complete. I'm hoping to have it done by the end of April, and it's going to have a bunch of really great um, recipes in there and videos showing some amazing uh, paleo dishes. So do check that out. And thanks to everybody for supporting uh, Harvest Eating and also the Survival Podcast. Jack, have a great weekend. Everybody, take care. Um, on the cookware, the Greystone is one of the items that I picked up from Chef and I have recommended, and I still recommend it. I have not had quite the issues he has. I have one that's pretty much ruined, though. And what happened was I was cooking. I left the burner on a low setting and forgot that I had left the burner on after I had taken the food out of the pan. Uh, got distracted for a bit. Smelled like something not quite right came back. And I wouldn't say it's ruined, but really it's ruined. It's It's got you know a blackened center and I don't know if that would have happened with these. These pans are a lot more expensive. I do have links in the show notes to the one specific pan that he mentioned and to the whole line. Um, the pan that he mentioned, the uh, the, the, the stir-five pan, looks amazing. It's also $200. Um, I'm going to have to do some more research on this myself before I figure out what products from this line I'm going to buy to test myself. I will be testing these out. As you guys know, I am a huge fan of cooking. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. I love to cook for friends and family, and I like using the best gear that I can. But I found the Greystone stuff to be just fine, as long as you like don't push it past its limits or forget it's sitting on a freaking gas burner jack. Um, I will say the handles kind of loosen up and need to be retightened and all, and, and, and this stuff, I, I have thought to myself using it, it'd be nice if these were a little thicker, a little heavier weight, especially the base of the pans. Um, I occasionally go back to my old school cast iron, uh, not probably the best thing for pasta, but probably would work just fine. And plain old carbon steel. I mean, well-seasoned carbon steel, you know, tossing pasta in that, that's that's as traditional as it gets. So um, I will make the commitment to you guys that I will spend some of my hard-earned money on some of this diamond cookware and give it my thorough beating and come back to you with what I think about it. However, Chef Keith's recommendations are always damn good. Uh, if he's sold on this stuff at the price, it's probably the best you can get on the market right now. It probably is, but I'll, I'll dig deeper into it. Let's take now a question for Doc Bones on removing your own stitches, or as the professionals call them, sutures. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with close to a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand-new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Tom, who writes, 
How can I minimize the chances of a wound opening after the removal of stitches, and what can I do to treat this at home should it happen? Had to get 15 stitches on my shoulder blade. Can't see myself paying for their removal. Seeing as how they're located in a position where the skin is tight and mobile, I wonder if this is a good idea. I plan on taking it a bit easy in the week or so after removal, but working construction, I occasionally have to pick up and move some heavy material. I'd hate for this to turn into an extended ordeal or worse yet, become infected. Trying to decide if I'd be okay removing the stitches myself or if I should just pay the doctor. Tom, sorry for your injury and glad to see you're healing okay. By yourself, I assume you mean a friend or loved one if the wound is actually on the shoulder blade uh, on your back. Over areas where there is mobility, I'd wait probably two weeks, maybe more, before removing them, as opposed to maybe a week, ten days, probably ten days in your case, elsewhere, if it's in an area that's not over a joint or in a particularly mobile location. If you had a doctor put in the stitches, interestingly enough, normally they don't charge for their removal. At least I didn't, or have an arrangement with a clinic where it can be done cheaply for those without insurance. You'll probably have to ask what their deal is for uninsured patients, if that's your case. For a stepwise description of the suture removal process, you could check out this link on WikiHow, www.wikihow.com forward slash remove dash stitches. Again, first contact the ER clinic or private doctor who performed the procedure in the first place. They really should remove the stitches for free, or at least pretty darn cheap. Just an opinion. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcasts the Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com and our current events podcast, American Survival Radio at GCNlive.com or American Survival Radio.com. Also, don't forget that Member Support Brigade folk get a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Uh, personally, I've had stitches in the past that I've removed myself because they weren't like on my back where I couldn't get to them. And, uh, the wound looked well healed. I took a small pair of, uh, snips and lifted up on the thing and snipped them off and pulled them out. I didn't do any of the crap that's in the wiki article that I will, of course, link to for you. Uh, like soak everything in alcohol and hot water and, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a well-heeled cut. You're pulling a thread out of it that's been sitting there exposed for weeks. Um, yeah. Um, however, some wounds don't heal as well, et cetera. I think we have to make our own decisions with things like this. For me, it isn't even, well, the doctor will remove it for free. Okay, so now, this is back when I'm working, I have to take work off, I have to go sit in the freaking office for 30 to 40 minutes, then I'm going to sit in the waiting room for another 15 to 20 minutes, the nurse is going to finally walk in, yank the stitches out, the doctor may or may not walk into the room backwards, look at it, yeah, that's fine, and, and then I'm going to stand around waiting to sign some paperwork or pay the miniature bill or whatever it is, and finally get my ass back to my life. Um, I do think there are certain things that we are called into medical offices for that are unnecessary. 
I don't think that's always stitches and sutures, but I think sometimes it depends on the wound. Was it serious? Was it something that was stitched? But it probably could have got by without it. Was it a deep cut where there was internal stitches with muscle being pulled back together as well? And those stitches, of course, will dissolve in time in the body. Uh, is there potential? I think we have to look at the totality of it, but... You know, I had a, a cut one time on the, on the tip of my ring finger on my left hand, you know, your wedding ring finger, and I had cut it on a barnacle. And it was long enough to need about four stitches. And, uh, you know, he's like, come back on this date and we'll take them out. And I don't even remember if I was going to be charged for it or not, but I just looked at it and went, I'm not going to the freaking doctor to have those four pieces of thread pulled out of my finger. Now, when I pulled them out, they came out nice and easy. They feel weird, but they didn't hurt. They didn't stick. Nothing bled. Everything was good. I went on about my way. If that had not been the case, I would have went and sought you know, you know, medical follow-up on it. So I think that's something we should think about before we decide whether or not, you know, is it or is it not worth three hours of my day? And if there's any question, it, it unquestionably is. And if there's really no question, then to me, it's... Not, but you got to make your own mind up and things like that. Next question I have is for Nicholas Ferguson on something called Lespediza. If you know what this is, you either think it's okay or you hate it. And if you don't know what it is, you might be like, what's that? Well, Nick will tell us and tell us how to deal with it. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on homesteading, permaculture, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. And the question I have today is on getting rid of Saracea lespediza. Ah, that horrible weed that I'm looking forward to getting growing on my property here. Well, first, let's kind of break down what the beneficial aspects are to this plant before we talk about eliminating or reducing its presence on a pasture. Well, first of all, it's a nitrogen-fixing legume that has high tannin levels in the plant matter, and it's actually used as a natural anti-helminetic. It's a dewormer because of the high tannin levels. I I want to use it for a dewormer for my goats and sheep. Um, and the, those higher tannins actually dispel worms, but at the same time, it makes it slightly unpalatable. So if it's dominating your land, then that's going to be a problem because it's going to be unpalatable. And normally any time that there's one kind of weedy type plant dominating your land, then that almost always seems to indicate Poor pasture management or fertility or any number of problems like that. But normally it's poor pasture management. So the first and foremost prescription to fixing that problem is going to be effective intentional rotational grazing patterns across your landscape. You need to be hammering that forage with all your animals in a rate that will reduce the total available forage by 60 to 75 percent in the spring when it's going to be pushing all of its root reserves into top growth for that spring, you know, rush. And then as soon as you see the plant start to push flower buds, that's the critical point where its energy reserves are the lowest in the roots. So if you mow the whole pasture at that point, you're going to seriously reduce the vigor of the Lespediza and disadvantage it for the next year. Now, most people will see relatively good success with this set of methods alone. And the next thing I'd suggest, if you're able to, is to do a combination subsoil ripping with a compost tea application followed by a diluted molasses spray about a month later. 
And if you do those extra things, you'll be further disadvantaging the Lespedeza while boosting soil life and reducing compaction. You're going to be shifting everything towards a healthier pasture, which remedies most of the reasons why that weed is gaining dominance. So all those things combined should get you pretty close to managing that weed effectively. Just remember, attention to detail is important here, and you'll need to make sure you mow at the right time and not afterwards. We want to interrupt the life cycle and advantage the more desirable pasture species. We're looking for balance and health. So all those things I suggested will do nothing to harm your pasture ecology, but instead will improve it and... There's one more drastic measure that you can take, but I discourage it except for an extreme situation, and that's to burn the pasture around September-ish. And it'll burning it will actually help speed up the seed coat degradation, which makes a whole bunch of that lespedeza germinate the next year and maybe a little bit that fall. So it'll make it more of a problem the next year, but at least you'll have expended the majority of the seed bank in the soil. So if you do decide to burn, then please make sure you improve the soil afterwards with the winter cover crop and compost tea application and make sure you're going to be able to graze that effectively the next year. I hope that helps you out. The timing was kind of funny because I was at a client's location when I got this question from Jack. We were literally just talking about it, me and the client, and... I showed him the email, and uh, <laughs> it's just funny. He, he just looked at it and kind of did a double take and said, oh, my gosh, you've got to be kidding me, um, because they were having this exact same issue, and we were just talking about it. So that was kind of funny. I th- just thought I'd throw that in there. I was up in Missouri planting, um, gosh, over a 1,000 fodder trees, putting in a pond, over a 1,000 feet of swale. We had a lot of fun. And speaking of fun, if you haven't heard... We're having a bit of a get-together in Saline, Louisiana on April 29th. I'll have plants and trees for sale. Most, if not all, the people coming are going to be bringing things to trade and barter. It'll be a lot of fun. Camping is available, so make sure you bring all your food and beverages for yourself. This is a free event. I'm not providing food and drink, so you're on your own with that. And please leave your pets at home unless they are service animals. We are a working homestead, and foreign animals are a danger and a liability both to my animals and to people. So if you want to come to a free event where lots of like-minded people are going to be trading and bartering, and we're going to have a lot of fun, then put it on your calendar. April 29th, I have a Facebook event on the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group where you can get details and talk to other attendees beforehand to coordinate what you want to bring in trade. And you can email me for details if you want to, nick at homegrownliberty.com. To learn more about me, check out homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. Great stuff, as always, from Nick Ferguson. He's got a lot going on. Make sure to check out his site and his Facebook group. Uh, next one is the last one of the day for a council member. I have a question for Gary Collins involving intermittent fasting and actually breaking the fast without breaking it. I don't know how to put it. it consuming a very small amount of calories in your middle of your intermittent fasting period right after a workout. I'm going to give you let Gary give you his opinion, and I'll come back with a couple thoughts on that as well, and then I've got um, a pretty complicated thing to finish the show up with today. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, and answering all your health and wellness, primal, paleo, off-the-grid, simplified living questions. 
And remember, guys, my Going Off the Grid book is out. It's on Amazon and on my website. And also make sure to listen to my new podcast, Old Dudes, New Tricks. Now we have an interesting question about intermittent fasting. And I actually get quite a few of these questions. And Ken wants to know if he can break his fast. And I go, well, that depends. Depends what you're trying to do. Now, Ken, during he's doing an 816 from what I could get. So eight hours of feeding, 16 hours of uh, fasting. So he works out during the fasting period, and I've done this as well, and he wants to know if he can have a protein shake after his workout, and he says it's only about 100 calories, and if this is okay. Well, again, it depends. What what is What is Ken trying to do? So if Ken is trying to add or maintain muscle, I would highly recommend that he does consume that protein shake within an hour window. Now, if he's not and he's trying to lose body fat, I would say, no, do not consume that protein shake and continue on with your fast. Now, the downside is when you work out during your fast, if you're not used to it, you're going to be very hungry. A good way to deal with hunger when you're in the fasting period, remember people, fat has a glycemic index of zero. So consuming a little fat during that period Will, will not affect your blood sugar levels. I always recommend to have like a teaspoon or two of coconut oil. That usually works the best. It's the easiest to choke down. But, uh, it also depends too. What, again, what are you, what is he doing? Is he doing resistance training? Is he doing endurance training? If he's doing resistance training again, yes, I would recommend that you take that protein shake in. Um, if you're doing endurance training, you can get away with, you know, longer periods and not having a protein shake, shake after. And also remember, and the reason I say this is through gluconeogenesis, we, we have the ability to convert protein and fat into glucose. You go, well, wait, Gary, you just said that we can consume fat. Where this usually happens is, uh, is using body fat. So a little different. Our body, it's really interesting and everyone's a little bit different. I'm giving you generalities. You're going to have to play around with this. None of these are definitive. Uh, Ken will have to try it, see how it works. Now, like I said, for people trying to lose weight, it's better to skip that protein shape, shake and stay in a fat-burning mode as long as you possibly can. Because what's going to happen with that protein shake, even though he's going to be getting those essential amino acids in order to replace or repair, or repair muscle tissue and grow muscle tissue, well, what we're going to do, our body will convert any of that extra protein into either blood sugar or also remember excess is excreted through your, your urine as nitrogen. That's how it works. That's how our body utilizes it. The only form of, of protein storage you have is body, is muscle mass. And you do not want to be cannibalizing your, your muscle in order to get glucose, uh, essential glucose into your bloodstream. Hope I didn't confuse you guys. I know that was went a full circle there. But again, Ken, to recap, if you're trying to maintain or, or gain muscle, I recommend you have that protein shake within an hour after you work out. If you are not and you're trying to burn body fat, I'd recommend that you do not take that protein shake. If the body losing body fat is your priority and then secondary is gaining muscle. After you lose that body fat, then you can start taking that protein shake after your workout. All right, guys, I hope that answered your question. Didn't confuse you too much. If you have more questions, make sure you send them to Jack. 
So one of the options that Gary gave you was coconut oil because it's pure fat as a, as a, as a secondary thing to, uh, to take instead of the protein shake. And the, the reality is that low-carb works and protein as a significant portion of your diet on a low-carb diet works. But eventually, about 60% of the protein calories that you take in are converted to glucose and either burned as glucose or converted to fat and stored. 100% of the fat that you take in is either burned and used as fat or stored as fat. Okay? That, that's, that's how that works. You, we, we don't convert fat to glucose in order to burn it. We can use fat as a direct energy source. Think about like a, a, you know, using melted fat to make a lamp. Fat burns real good. All right, so that's part of why he's saying it, because we can take that as some caloric intake and some energy without affecting our blood glucose level at all, where protein will have an effect on blood glucose. However, I have to admit that at 100 calories of protein, it ain't going to have much, and it's going to be very spread out, and that's the difference. It's See, some people that, that teach high-fat, low-carb diets, pure, high, you know, like 90% of your calories based on fat, will point that out, and they'll make it like if you eat 10 grams of protein, it's equivalent to 6 grams of carbohydrate. It is, but it isn't, because it's equivalent to a gram, and then a gram, and then a gram, like a time-release capsule, which has a much lower impact on the glucagon and insulin response in your system. Okay, so it's more when we take protein, and if we take enough of it in, we can still spike blood sugar with it. But we got to take a lot. It won't have the same effect of the same amount of direct carbohydrate, though. Not even gram for gram. I'm talking the 60% ratio here. All right. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're dealing with low carb, not necessarily primal paleo. And I'm more toward the low carb side of things now than the primal paleo side of things. It's a little bit easier to do. I think paleo really is a good way to figure out what the hell you can and cannot handle and as an elimination diet and as a purging diet and as a start. And it's a good thing to do on a reboot once in a while. Kind of you go off the reservation, you put a few pounds on you didn't really want to put on. Do paleo for 30 to 45 days again and get back into the rhythm and move more into you know, conscious low-carb eating. All right. So, But another option, and this will not be paleo, and it's probably why, why, why Gary didn't recommend it, heavy cream. It is not technically paleo because the stri stringent paleo person says, no dairy. I have never bought into that in my life. I have never, ever, ever bought into the no dairy component of paleo in my life. Because man has been killing animals for a long time, and I guarantee you if man killed an animal and it was a female and she had a full udder, that milk did not go to waste. I guarantee you men figured out real quick, oh, look at this white stuff, mm, yum, okay? Um, I think most of the dairy problems we have are due because of the processing of dairy, which removes the enzymes that aid in digestion, and some people can digest dairy well without those enzymes, and some people can't. And many people that think they're lactose intolerant, etc., have dairy reactions, whatever, if they consume raw milk and raw milk products, poof, everything goes away. If they consume raw milk products and specifically dairy fermented products, poof, no problems. And some people, even with that, have a problem. So you have to figure out where you are. But assuming you're not banishing dairy, one ounce of heavy cream is almost exactly equivalent to your 100-calorie uh, protein shake. It'll be 97 calories. 
which isn't much in a fasting period. It really isn't. It's not pure fat. There is one gram of carbohydrate and one gram of protein, so we could think of that over time release of 1.6 gram of carbohydrate. Wah, wah, no, it's just, it's not going to affect your blood sugar. It just, it, it can't. Especially in the middle of an intermittent fast, right after a workout. The difference between the coconut oil and the heavy cream is the heavy cream actually kind of sort of tastes good. An ounce of heavy cream, put about three drops or two drops, probably not even, probably, probably one drop of stevia, liquid stevia in it, and mix it up a little bit, and shoot it like a shot. It'll go right down. You won't have to choke it down. And it is an incredible appetite suppressant. If, if you're on a, di you know, a diet that's a low-carb type thing or whatever, and you want to help yourself between like that you know, breakfast period and lunch, if you drink coffee, throw an ounce of heavy cream in your cup of coffee. It will just kill your appetite because it's so rich, even though it's not that calorically rich. Now, I personally think if you're only giving your body 100 calories to work with after a workout that's probably burned way more than that, you're probably not screwing up your intermittent fast too much, especially if, like Gary says, you're on maintenance or muscle building. If you're on fat reduction, I still think this would just be fine. I really do. And the best way to do it is to monitor your progress, add that procedure, and see if it screws your progress up, or you might find that it actually increases your progress. I mean, again, you got to go back to this. It's less than 100 calories during a very broad um, uh, intermittent fasting period. Here's some other things that you can look at. You may adjust your intermittent fast. Maybe you don't need to have your intermittent fast last quite as long. Maybe you can shorten about two hours. And maybe you can still get the same results or good enough results that you're happy is, is another way to look at it. Is it giving you results that make you happy? That's how we have to always look at our nutrition. Because if we have nutritional regimens that we can live with and fitness regimens that we can live with, And we're happy with them, and we're happy with the results, we stick to them. If we're happy with the results, but we don't like the regimen, we'll fall out. And if we are you know, not okay with the, with the regimen and not happy with the results, we definitely are going to fall out. Why am I doing this? And if we are unhappy with the results, but happy with the regimen, we'll fall out because I'm not getting the results I want. So that's always the balance that we're looking to find there. So just think about that. And by shortening the fast or maybe changing the start time of the fast, one of the things you might be able to do is get to a point where you could do the workout right at the end of your fast. That might be another way to look at rescheduling and rebalancing things. Or maybe only two hours away. So you only have a two-hour delta before you can eat again. My concern with people that do the intermittent fasting thing with a heavy workout and then have too long of a delta before it becomes time to eat is when it's time to eat, they go overboard with their eating. They're just, like, they're completely famished. Two hours is a good amount of time, because even if you get really hungry, it gives you enough time for that hunger to kind of subside. And even a half ounce of that heavy cream will just take that out of you. Um, and always be careful with your health on this stuff, too. So... My, my segment for today um, involves something that recently happened to many uh, YouTube content creators. Wrangler Star is somebody that many of the people in this audience will know. If you don't know him, you'll know some other people I might mention, like Nut and Fancy. His channel is almost 100% related to guns. 
Uh, apparently this happened with some people that are very political, especially to the right side of the political spectrum with, with, that, that some people might call extreme, etc. Um, YouTube has demonetized a huge number of their videos, meaning that there's no longer commercial shown when those videos play. And for some of these people, Wrangler Star, for instance, has a half a million subscribers. This is, you know, a I would imagine a very significant revenue segment for him. I can't be sure. I don't put anywhere near the effort into YouTube that many of these people do. YouTube for me is this thing that's part of what I do. It's like it's like an appendage. But I have about 30,000 YouTube subscribers, even with taking the approach of just throwing some duck videos up and some aquaponics videos up and some gum videos up and things like that, too. And I make about $300. So if the math were logarithmic and worked out you know, on, on a straight curve, then I would calculate that somebody like Wrangler Star should be making about $60,000 to $70,000 a year on YouTube as a content creator. And for many people, that's a full-time income. If they can do that, then they can focus, like, whatever they're doing is their content creation. If it's their life, they can have the life they want on that. There's a lot of people that work jobs really hard for less than that amount of money, even when you factor paying your own Social Security and all that stuff and paying your own benefits. There's plenty of people out there killing themselves for 30. And 60 you make on your own is better than 30 somebody pays you, unless you have a really fantastic benefits program that probably doesn't exist at that level of a job. Okay? So, I mean... To lose that or to lose a portion of that hurts, and I've been through it before. And I'm gonna, before I go into this, because I don't want anybody thinking being I'm an apologist for YouTube here, because remember, there is no YouTube. It is not YouTube doing this. YouTube is a thing. It is owned by dun, 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 Google, who one of their tenants is do no evil. They have in their, their, their you know the kind of the thing they put out on their their corporate policies first do no evil. Generally, when somebody says their policy is to do no evil, they're covering their ass because they do some evil. How much evil here? Maybe less than they've done before. Let's talk about two things that Google did before that really hurt people that are similar to this. The first one is the same platform that they're using for YouTube today, Google AdSense. I've told this before, so I'll be brief. But they used to have, well, they still do, a program where you can put ads from Google on your website. And somebody comes to your website, they see it, they click the ad, and you got a portion of the ad revenue. At the time that they really rolled this out and they were pushing it and trying to get thousands and thousands of us that were content creators to run their ads for them, they never disclosed, but based on research, keyword research, and people that were buying traffic and then looking at how much we were getting paid for the traffic, it was about 50%. So if Google got a dollar, I got 50 cents. This made it very profitable for me and many other people who went way beyond what I did to make websites that were specifically designed for Google advertising. And one day Google just changed the rules. They just started paying less. And they started they they, they actually removed payments that they had already counted for us and said things like, "Well, we believe there was click fraud on your account." What? How the hell could there be click fraud on my websites when most of the traffic that I got was from your search engine? And you sent them a, a thing with your, your analytics from their from Google Analytics. Here, look, 98% of my traffic last, last month was from your search engine. How the hell could it be click fraud if it's from you? And they just don't respond. And that month, I was set to make about $7,000 in AdSense. And by the end of the month, I was down to $1,200. 
And it dwindled from there to now it's it's not even worth I mean I haven't done anything with it for 10 years so it's not worth talking about but had I kept doing what I was doing maybe I could have made 500 bucks versus seven eight thousand so it wasn't worth it anymore someone off and did other things this hurt but I was just getting there with it so I went off and did other things and it made me make a decision that I would not be when it came to my primary revenue sources a digital sharecropper If someone could change the rules and affect my income, that could only ever be, you know, I'm not going to not take the money. And when I made, you know, for the next couple of years, I made a couple hundred dollars a month doing absolutely nothing. I certainly didn't send the money back. And if it had stabilized to where they were paying a reasonable payout, I would have continued to throw some stuff up, right? Or I would at least maintain the little satellite sites. You know, I would have make, like made sure that everything stayed relevant and turned up a few leaks. Because it would have been worth it. Because it would have been, you know, 20 hours a month of work for, for 500 bucks. I'll do that. I don't know if I'd do it now, but at the time I would have done that. But it, it, it obviously wasn't going to happen. And it became such that, well, it is what it is. The content's there. If I have a, a, an, inter an internet property with no other monetization thing, I'll still use it as long as it works, but I'm not going to do anything with the intent of making it my primary revenue model anymore. That was pretty evil because Google had huge content providers build up massive, massive traffic through their ad network and then just change the price because they could. That was a pure... There was no compelling reason other than we can get away with it. And they knew damn well that these people that had put all these sites up were not going to take the time to go out and take it all back down. That it would last, you know, the, the residual effect would be five to ten years. And I still make a little, I mean, like $20 a month of my AdSense earnings that I get out of like $350, $300, somewhere in that range, will be from these old sites that I haven't touched in ten years. So if I'm doing it, other people are doing it too, just because, well, what the hell, I'm not going to worry about it. So I built a site about heavy construction equipment, you know, 10 years ago on a subdomain of a primary domain with a bunch of other sites on it, and it's still sitting out there, and, and, and it makes Google five bucks, and it makes me a penny, I, but it doesn't cost me any extra host because it's on my shared hosting or my dedicated box. Why do I give a damn? And that's, that's what they, they made a calculated decision. And it was when, see, Yahoo came out with a competitive product called Publisher, And when that program, basically, people tried it and went, shit, it doesn't work as good as Google's, then if Yahoo had left it there, Google would have never, ever made the move that they did. But when Yahoo didn't get a huge punch with it and took it away, and it was the only other choice, Google snapped to it. And it was like Yahoo took the platform away, and a month later, boom, the AdSense death came. Okay? Now, the other time Google did something like this, there was a website, I'm sure it still exists, maybe it's called something else, but it was called Paper Post. And what it was is if you were a small-time blogger, people who wanted you to blog about their stuff could make offers, and you could accept the offer. And the primary thing people were looking for is did you have Google PageRank or PR, which we won't get into, but it was a metric that Google put out, said it didn't mean anything, and lied. It absolutely did mean something. They knew it meant something. And if you had links on other websites with good PR, you got better listings than Google. So all of these bloggers were kind of, many of them were a little bit delusional. They thought people actually cared about their, you know, their feisty chick blog or, or whatever, their snarky gal blog or whatever. They, they had, no, what they cared about was snarky gal had like a Google PR of a five, which is pretty damn good. So 
if she blogged about you and linked to your site with a certain link a certain way, that would help you with Google. Now, there was actually nothing evil or wrong about this service. Every single post had a disclaimer in it, a little button that said this was you know, provided for a paid, so it was fully disclosed. And Google's search algorithm actually liked it. It actually did make you, it wasn't like magic, but you could, you could get exposure for your site, and then it wasn't going to do it all by itself. It wasn't like you could cheat the system with it, but it would get your, spy, your site indexed. It would, you know, get Google spiders paying attention to it. And if you were doing other good things the right way and you were doing good content, you could do okay in the search rankings. So thousands upon thousands of companies started running campaigns with paper post. Now, Google couldn't fix their algorithm to compensate for it. So they paid interns to sit and catch people who were doing it and manually adjusted their PR to zero. They took single moms that were working at home, that were making $1,300, $1,500 a month, that were able to stay at work at home, and they destroyed the value of their internet property manually because they didn't like what was going on. That was pretty evil. Okay, so the reason I said that before we go into what they've just recently done is I'm going to explain their point of view in this And I don't want you to think I'm saying Google's wonderful and we should wrap them up in a big hug. But I actually understand why they're doing what they're doing. When I heard this, I went, wait a minute. I don't believe that, you know, Eric Schmidt or something one day just said, hey, you know what? We got a lot of, a lot of people putting up like, you know, videos about Jesus and what Jesus thinks about abortion. And we have a lot of people putting up videos about guns. And I don't like that. And we should, we should, Take away their ability to make money even though they have a half a million or a million subscribers. I don't think Google would want to do that because the other two decisions, while they were evil, they were absolutely motivated by money. Absolutely motivated by money. And it was, we can just do this and we'll have more money. Now, the first one was because you cut the payout to the partner, you get to keep more money. That's pretty contrary. You might wonder how the, the paid blogger one worked. Well, if you had really good search results, you were less likely to go buy advertising from Google. So if there became a way that you could kind of commoditize SEO or search engine optimization, it would hurt their direct ad revenue. They also just didn't like it. They didn't like somebody manipulate. They've always considered anybody that manipulates their algorithm that they built, instead of fixing the flaws, we must attack them. Right? So it was a spiteful thing, too. In this case, something very, very different is going on, and it's still about money. Many advertisers, specifically a lot of them out of the UK, which is far more socialist, uh, social justice warrior type, you know, influenced organizations, and several domestic ones as well, uh, noticed that you know they might have their product being advertised on this crazy guy from the desert southwest talking about guns all the time and their company was hugely anti-gun and a bunch of them got together and i have an article that i've linked to in the show notes so you can you can learn more about this but the total cost in lost advertising on this boycott by this collective group of advertisers was 750 million dollars for the year Okay, three quarters of a billion. Google anticipates that they will do on the monetization advertising for YouTube about $10 billion. 
So almost, not quite, but almost 10% hit to their revenue like that. Because what the advertiser was saying is, I don't want my ads on their videos. Now, I want you to hold your anger if you like Wrangler Star or, uh, or, or Nut Fancy or any of these people. I want you to hold your fire at being angry for a second. I want you to think logically. It's your business. You're going to lose 10% of your revenue, and maybe it's going to cascade and be more if you don't do something. Are you going to do, not necessarily with Google, but are you going to do something? And most people would say, well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And remember, you're not talking about Jack Spirico's TSP, where I can just tell somebody to piss off, and if I lose 10% of my revenue from it, I don't give a damn. I'm going to stand on principle. You're talking about a publicly traded company who is subject to a lawsuit by its shareholders if it doesn't maintain good fiscal responsible behavior. And, no, and doing nothing would actually open them to a class action lawsuit that they would probably lose. So not only would they lose money, their own shareholders would turn around and sue them. for Even if you didn't want to as a shareholder, somebody would do it in your behalf with class action. Okay, So you got to understand where Google's at in this. So now the victims, what is the something to do? Let's go a little further with this. I've been amused at times and pissed at times about this. I'll watch one of my own videos and an advertisement will come up for Monsanto. And I'd like to actually, there's a way to do it, but I can't figure out how to do it with the YouTube. I would actually like to say, I don't want Monsanto's advertisement on my content. And I guarantee you, if Monsanto knew that on my video about how GMOs suck, their advertisement was playing, and that all of my followers think that Monsanto is the devil, it wouldn't be like, the anti-gun company going, I don't want to appear like I'm supporting any gun. The Monsanto advertising person would say, this is poorly spent money. This advertising is not going to yield a positive result for us. We don't want to advertise there because this is a bad match. Effectively, many of these companies that are going to Google and saying, we're not going to advertise if you're going to put us on Wrangler Star's video, are saying, we don't want to sponsor his content. Well, Google, for all the shit they've done, and I might need to, to sign up as an advertiser to advertise on YouTube because I never have. So I don't know how much control you have as an advertiser, but I, my, my instinct is not a lot, especially if you're buying like all available, like you might have targeted stuff for a certain amount of money and then a big amount of slush fund every month because a lot of these companies, what they say is, well, we're going to put uh, $250,000 in YouTube advertising. Just that's what we're going to do. So then they'll, they'll, they, because this is how a lot of the pay-per-click stuff works. So we're going to tightly control this, and that's going to give us an estimated spend with very targeted things of uh, $150,000. Well, shit, we still have $100,000. So they'll just, you know, the cheapest stuff you can give us, just give us everything. And then all of a sudden, you're on videos that your company specifically does not want to represent. So... If you don't have a, if Google can't go to them and say, "Look, you can just not advert. Here's here's your control panel. Switch this all off, and don't put your content there." And they have to stop the bleeding of the seven hundred fifty million dollars just walking away. What they did is they went through the the ones that were causing the biggest outcry from their sponsors and demonetized the videos altogether. I think I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not 100% sure they just turned off the monetization. From Cody's video, from Wrangler Star's video, it sounds like that's what they did. What may have happened is it's still monetized. There's just no ads on it anymore. 
Because that was where their advertising revenue was coming from. Now, I want you to think about this, again, if you suspend your anger for a second. If you are a pro-gun or pro-religion or pro-conservative or pro-libertarian channel, and that's what your core, core thing is, how do you actually feel about being represented as being sponsored by someone that's anti-you? Which is what I said earlier. I kind of would like to just say Monsanto cannot advertise on TSP's YouTube channel. If it costs me ten bucks because that was how much revenue I got from them, fine. Now, other people might say, you know what? I'll take their freaking money because they're stupid for advertising on my channel. Part of me feels that way too. But you can understand that the advertiser would want greater control over which channels they can and cannot advertise on. Now, here's the other side of this. Google likes money. They're very good at making money. They don't want a person like Cody with a half a million subscribers to not have a way to monetize their, his videos because then they don't have a way to monetize his videos. So I think what Google will do is give the advertisers greater control over where their content is displayed and simply say, if you don't want a channel that uses any of these keywords, click this box. Or stick the keywords, and they have to build. They now the, the technology they should have built. They will now have to build to fix this problem. I think they probably will. Here's the other side of that, though. Here's the other side of that, though. That may actually affect negatively the revenue of all YouTube content creators over time, because as the advertisers get better at targeting it, they're going to eliminate a lot of their wasted spend. Because if they can, because when the guy, when I said, you know, this company is like a big company, so we're just going to a quarter million dollars a month, and some of them do. And they're spending a hundred thousand on everything they can get just because of the total quantity. It's so cheap. If they could spend a hundred percent of that quarter million highly targeted, they would. So remember when I started this and I said Google basically screwed over content creators by changing the payout? They did, but that's not the only reason being an AdSense content developer reduced in value over time. The other reason was the companies buying the advertising started using the tools that Google already had in place for them and getting more and more targeted and saying things like, if I'm on the content network, I want to bid lower. So not only did Google cut the payout, the advertisers got more savvy, got more tight on their advertising, and reduced how much was being spent in that world at the same time. Because they knew... Search traffic converted at a higher rate than content network traffic. What the case has been with YouTube is it's been so cheap in the world of corporate advertising. The fact that you could reach 50 million people for, I don't know, probably a, you know, $10,000 to a company that's used to paying, you know, a million dollars for a 60 second commercial in the Super Bowl. Well, screw it. We don't care. Just do it. And if they're getting any response at all, they're happy. But sooner or later, somebody in these socially conscious companies realizes, hey, there's a guy with a, a flak jacket and one of them scary assault rifles and our ad's on his thing, and we don't like that. Now, I, I guarantee you if it was one company spending $200,000 a year with Google, Google would have said, okay, so... But when you're looking at three quarters of a billion dollars going away, 
from a publicly traded entity that's subject to lawsuit by its shareholders, it had to do something. What is the lesson here if your dream is to be a YouTube content provider? Okay, the lesson is not don't make content that will piss off these advertisers. Because I think if that's what you really want to do, that you should do it. The, the lesson would be don't make all of your videos that way. Because it seems to be, in many cases, video by video. Where someone, you say, well, nothing fancy. It's like almost all his videos. Well, almost all his videos are about guns. Where Cody at Wrangler Star has noticed that like a lot of them, yes, and a lot of them, no. Why? Because a lot of his videos wouldn't offend anybody. You know, any, even these, these weirdos. Like, I'm not saying it's okay for these weirdos. Actually, I am saying it's okay for these, these companies to be offended. As a company with a company directive and goal, if I don't want to spend my advertising dollars with you because I don't like what you do, I think that's the free market. The problem is that Google threw an off switch instead of putting a filter. And hopefully they'll put in a filter. My view is, if you're making all of your money as a YouTube content provider, and you're doing it all through the AdSense platform, you're doing 100% digital sharecropping. You're farming on somebody else's farm. Not only are you farming on somebody else's farm, you're selling all of your product through their marketing system. So it's one thing to be a sharecropper and say, I'm going to lease this land, I'm going to grow 80 pigs on it. I'm going to go put my electric fence up around it, my, my, uh, my portable fencing as well. I'm going to paddock shift these pigs for seven months, and then I'm going to take them and I'm going to sell them into the market, and I'm going to get a premium for them. And if I get thrown off this farm, I'll just go lease another one, take all my electric fencing shit, all my stock tanks, everything that's portable, and two or three trailer moves, and I'm down the road and I got another place. Because my, my revenue was never from the, 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 the leased land. It was just where I did my operations. That's how I think you need to look at YouTube and Facebook and any place else where they give you a way to monetize. If, they, if you can get money for monetizing your content, turn it on, but don't get addicted to it. That's, that's gravy. That's gravy. The main course is how do you monetize. So here's how I feel about Cody. Cody, and I, I linked, he does like a, it's like a 20-minute video, but only the second half is, and it like just all of a sudden goes into this problem out of nowhere. Like, it just changes, and it just starts talking about it, and we don't know what this means and whatever. I've linked to it from the show notes, and I've, I've linked to it so it jumps straight to that part so you can see him explain it and, and understand it better than maybe I've explained it because I'm explaining the other side, not what happened and what it means to him because it means a lot more to him than it means to me. My revenue went up. I'm not saying that means it's not a problem. I'm saying it means it's not a problem for me. So since it didn't hit me, I don't have the same emotion, which actually probably makes me more logical in my assessment. Right? If it hit me harder, I might be a little more pissed. But I've seen Google do way worse, so I'm like, yeah, of course Google did this. Because it was financially, in, you know, and it was, it was like more justifiable than some of the other shit they did. But what I pointed out in a comment to Cody, and I don't know how he'll take it, is he was saying things like, you know, we don't want to put any burden on our viewers. What? You got a half a million people watching what you do. You don't want to put a burden on them? See, I think if you're providing good content, Some portion of the eyeballs looking at you that value your content won't have a problem providing you some sort of compensation for it. You know, the same person you don't want to apply a burden to might have a $200 a month cable bill. They don't mind paying that because they want the red zone package. Right? So, I mean, we're in the same business as cable TV people or radio people. Right? So with a podcast, I'm in the same business that, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, Glenn Becker in. I just have a different way that I do my delivery. 
when you're on YouTube, you're in the same business that Netflix is in, maybe is a better way to think of it. Or Amazon Prime download videos are. Or even cable TV is. You have the more eyeballs, the more value your content has. Now, there's a thing called Patreon. I don't know a lot about it. I don't know if you could go as low as a dollar, but I'm going to go for this, uh, this explanation. Cody Wrangler Star has 500,000 plus subscribers. 10% of that is 50,000. If he could get 10% of his subscribers to say, you're worth a dollar a month. You're worth a dollar a month. He'd make $50,000 a month. That's, that's $600,000 a year. Now, here's what else I'm going to say about that. And, 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 and this is not an attack on anybody because it would apply any, to any channel with the same number he has. If you can't get 10% of the people paying attention to you to spend $12 a year with you, then you're not bringing that much value to the advertiser that's been paying to advertise on your content because your content doesn't drive purchasing decisions at a high enough level to be worth what the advertiser's paying for it. In other words, the reason you advertise is it, it's not like sponsoring a little league team. Like, okay, they're the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the local little league team, they're the Bears. And you know, you're, you're, you're survival podcast, and you, you write a check for $1,000 to sponsor them for the season, and they, they can take their field trip or go take their away game or whatever, and maybe they put your little emblem on their uniform or whatever, but you know you're not going to get your money back. It could happen, but you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it to be nice. You're doing it to be a patron, right? right? You're, you're trying to help them. In the world of advertising on the internet, you're not doing a sponsorship to be nice. You're doing a sponsorship because if I spend $1,000 of advertising, if it makes me $2,000 of revenue, I want to know how I can spend $2,000 and get four. And if it keeps continuing that way, I'll spend every dime I can on that source until it runs out. But if I spend $1,000 on advertising and it brings me $500 worth of value, I'm not spending another dollar on it. So the content providers that are making $50,000, $60,000 a year in advertising should be able to make similar to that, or at least half of that value a month, if they were effectively monetizing their content directly to their audience. And if you want to be in the content production business, that's what I think you should do. Now, here's the interesting thing. That was the same advice that I gave you eight years ago in regard to the same question before this problem existed. Why, one, past behavior of the big Google, so you know they'll do it again. But the other reason is it's just more effective. It's just more effective. The primary thing I sell on the Survival Podcast is memberships. Why? Because if my content is valuable enough that you'll buy a filter from the Berkey guy, or you'll buy coins from JM Bullion, Why wouldn't I capitalize on myself directly by putting together a product of value and offering it to you myself? That's smart business, and that's what any... If you have 30, 40, 50,000 people paying attention to you in any social media outlet, and you're not monetizing it, you don't understand the situation. And to talk like that would be victimizing or putting a burden on them. You know, if you're putting out, like this guy puts out like freaking five videos a week or something like that. High production value, high value videos. You don't exist 
solely to serve. You exist to serve an audience, but you can only do that if you're able to make enough money to make it worth the time and effort. It's a lot of time and effort to produce a podcast, a video program, anything like that. Anybody that's ever done it gets a new appreciation for it. So wherever you're doing it, you know, people that are you know, models on Instagram, you know, and they have no, and they have, you know, a million followers or some stupid shit like that, and they make no money. They get some free tickets to a baseball game or something like that. Are you kidding me? If there's that many people paying attention to you, and you can't figure out how to monetize it, YouTube, Google, etc., are not your problem. You are your own problem, and you need to solve that problem and figure out how to monetize what you're doing without taking advantage of your members or your listeners or your viewers or what have you. Not asking for charity. But I'll tell you what, a guy that's putting out, you know, I don't even, just let's say it's, it's 10 a month, high quality, high production value videos that a half a million people subscribe to because they want to see them when they come out, saying, hey, if you think there's some value to this, how about becoming a Patreon or doing it to help write Patreon on out of it? Set up a members program. You know? Set up a members program. Do one video a month that's only for members. An exclusive video that's not on YouTube. And, and put that in a members area. And say, if you want to support the work we do here at the channel at the end of your show, hey, become a member. It's $12 a year. And with a half a million viewers, 10%, $50,000 a month. Your problem is not. If you are a content provider with that level of, 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 of production, your content, your, your, your problem is not the monetization platform of the place you're sharecropping at. It's the failure to monetize your own. And that's not in defense of Google. I hope that's clear after how hard I beat them like a red-headed stepchild today. That's concrete business advice. On that note, even though it doesn't involve a third party, if you want to support us, one of the ways you can is to do your shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com and you click a link. You go over to, uh, to Amazon and you search for stuff. You find stuff, you buy stuff, we get credit as your affiliate. And because we believe in providing a higher form of value at all times and not just asking for you to do stuff to help us, I do reviews of products on a daily basis. Sometimes I bring an item back around that's done well with you guys in the past because, hey, new people every day, right? Today is one of those times. I first reviewed this item last year in the summer. It is an item for your kitchen. It is the Perfect Cook Digital Instant Read Thermometer. That's our item of the day. Um, what this is, it looks like a little switchblade knife, except instead of a knife, well, not really a switchblade, like a, more like a, uh, just like a standard pocket knife, but instead of a blade that comes out of it, it's a poker, right? So you open it up, you pull your poker out, and you poke your meat. Now, the purpose of this poker is not just to poke your meat and make juice come out of it and ruin it. It's actually to prevent you from ruining it. Um, most people think of a, a digital instant read thermometer for your food, especially for like steaks and chicken is we want to make sure that we cook it long enough. It's not dangerous and doesn't kill us and give us salmonella or something like that. And you meet a phobes out there need to chill out and stop ruining your meat. And that's what this really does. What it lets you do is if you're going to cook your steak to let's say 140 degrees because you want it to be a nice medium. Uh, to medium, you know, medium, heading, heading toward medium well, but not there yet. Well, then you can cook it to 140 degrees and get it the hell off before it goes up to 148 degrees and ruins it. And you can do that with all your, and I use mine all the time. It doesn't even go in a drawer. 
It sits right next to my stove on a little, like a little thin area to the right side of my stove where a couple little things are because it gets used that much. I'm, I'm cooking something in a pan. I think that looks about done. I'll stick it in there. Yep, that's done. Out it comes. And understanding that when you take meat out of a pan, off a grill, out of a roaster, whatever, it's at 140, there's carryover heat, and it's going to actually come up a little bit before it settles out and begins to cool down. Right, and that's what this is for. Again, it's the perfect cook digital instant read thermometer. Uh, I looked at a lot of different ones. This one's like twenty-two dollars or something like that. I haven't found one for fifty bucks that's better. So I recommend you check out the uh, review I have for that today. It was a top fifty item of 2016, so I I brought it back around again for you, and it will make you a better cook because you won't ruin your meat. All right. Okay. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day today. The song of the day is by a band called The Cars. And uh, I think there's a theme going on here. I don't know if John Adam intended it when he picked this or not, but he talks about kind of new age sound with this. Well, yesterday we had Quiet Riot, and they were known as the first you know, group, a first heavy metal band to have a top ten hit in America on the major indexes. And I said, was Quiet Riot uh, a heavy metal band? And uh, then I said, no, no, that's just marketing. And I said, you know, when I was a young kid, and it was upsetting to my Catholic school teacher and my grandmother and stuff like that, it, the fact that they thought it was heavy metal made me think it was heavy metal and I thought I was cool. And, you know, but Quiet Riot's really not a heavy metal band. Um, and then sometimes a band like the Cars, you know, the new wave thing, I think that what you really have there is kind of like it is, but it's the, like a, it's been... It's been doctored up a little bit to be palatable to the mainstream. If you think about somebody like Goo Goo Dolls, right, being marketed as a punk band, and, and yeah, but no, right, and that's kind of how it is. And it's, but it is. Here's what John Adams says. He says, in addition to the growing hair metal popularity, was the introduction of new wave music in the late 1970s. The Cars fused new wave synthesizer sound with guitar rock into a long list of popular songs spanning close to a decade. This song uh, video was the winner of the first ever MTV Video of the Year Award, beating out Thriller by Michael Jackson. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I always link to the video of the song of the day in the show notes. You might want to look at this one. This is a horrible video. It's cheesy, it's stupid, and it's kind of like, if it wasn't so preposterous and ridiculous, it's kind of creepy stalker. Right? Like the guy's like stalking the chick. Like she opens her lipstick and he's inside it. And then he's like outside her window as a giant. He pulls her out. And I mean, it's like if you made that video today, the social justice warriors would just go nuts. But it beat Michael Jackson's thriller for video of the year. And the cars became a mainstream band on um, MTV. My youngest sister, Katrina, was kind of a baby at this time. Like, you know, like the two-and-a-half, three-year-old toddler model. Spent a lot of time in the playpen, so she stayed out of trouble. And a lot of time crawling around on the floor, getting into trouble. And she loved the cars. Didn't know who they were, didn't sing some of the love. And it was a different video she liked even better that I thought was actually a pretty cool video for the time called Magic. You might think it's magic, right? And they show him walking on a pool. And if you look real close, you can see the plexiglass that, that, that actually allows him to look like he's walking on water and stuff like that. But it was pretty cool. This one was cheesy. But the sound did become something. You know, bands like like Devo and Flock of Seagulls and Bananarama and all of that kind of sprung board off of your rhythmics even a little bit off of this. Kind of this new wave almost heading toward the punk thing, but really being polished for popular music of the time. And 
was extremely popular and not a bad song. Video was cheesy and, again, a little creepy, but the song's pretty damn good. Good way to go into your weekend. I realize also this weekend is uh, Easter Sunday weekend. For a lot of you, that has a great deal of meaning. Please take the time to be with your families during this time and enjoy the significance and meaning of that and uh, have a great weekend. I will be back on Monday with another edition. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Till the sun fell down, you kept it going.